If you are considering only the structural facades, Old Baltimore seems the most beautiful Baltimore. The remaining cobblestone straits in Fells Point, the tall ships occasionally docked in our harbor, taverns named for admirals, the parks dedicated to men labeled as patriots, the cannons perched atop our battle-boasting hills. So many of these objects and accents seem intrinsic to the city landscape, and as such, most residents don't give them the deepest of thought every time we pass them by. Still, encountering all that old Baltimore imagery daily has impact, both obvious and invisible, and that impact varies according to our historical vantage. For Baltimore's black communities, relics of old Baltimore are relics of the slave trading that took place at our ports and in our markets. And monuments to soldiers, daughters, and wives of the Confederacy celebrate the very people who fought hard to maintain an economy of enslavement in the city. Recently, under the cover of night, the city of Baltimore removed four of those relics from various sites downtown. It did so somewhat surreptitiously between the hours of 1 and 3 a.m. on a Wednesday morning in August. In this special mini-episode of The Rise of Charm City, you'll hear from a few community members, artists and writers, entrepreneurs, and students as they process their immediate thoughts on the removal of four Confederate statues in Baltimore, the Jackson Lee Memorial, the Confederate Soldiers and Sailors Monument, the Confederate Women's Monument, and the Roger B. Taney Monument and they'll grapple with what that really means for a city where the African-American community's self-selected and self-erected monuments are also quietly being removed on a fairly regular basis. I'm Stacia Brown, and this is The Rise of Charm City, bonus episode two, Never Monument to Hurt You. And I thought that there's enough grandstanding, enough speeches being made, get it done. Mayor Catherine Pugh in a press conference following the monument removal. I spoke with the council on Monday morning. I spoke with the president of the city council. I said, with the climate of this nation, that I think it's very important that we move quickly and quietly. I also submitted that to the entire body of the city council and said, we're gonna be moving quickly quietly to get this done. Uh, and so that's what I did. Uh, I, 11.30, 11 o'clock last night, gathered, and we moved the statues. I didn't see all of it. This is Lisa Snowden McRae, community coordinator at the Baltimore Sun. Lisa and her husband happened upon the removal of the Jackson Lee Memorial in Wyman Park Dell on their way home from a friend's birthday celebration at around 1 a.m. Some people kind of talking and laughing, celebratory. Other people more like solemn. I, I kind of was more solemn about it, just kind of watching. Um, there was a lot of just kind of looking at the construction guys, inspect and figure out how they were going to make this thing happen. So, Because we were actually out there for like two hours. So finally, when they moved this giant crane and just kind of lifted it up, Everybody kind of went like, woo, and there was like some clapping and stuff like that. I'm not sure when someone spray-painted Black Lives Matter on the base of the actual thing, but that was also there. Also present, the Madre Luz, a rather transient statue of a pregnant black woman with a fist upraised, crafted by artist Pablo Macchioli. 
people kept knocking that the woman statue over. So the way that they had positioned it, like when I was there, it was like she, it almost looked like she was facing that other statue, which is kind of like a striking image. And it was cool to see. You know, I've written a little bit about how I feel like a black woman's body, especially like when it comes to childbearing, is disrespected in a lot of ways and not valued and not treated with any real care. So to see that image elevated like that and then see also Black Lives Matter was kind of a cool thing. And then once the statue was gone and loaded onto the truck, that was still there. At least when, as when I left, the, the woman's statue was still there. Created a few years ago for the precise purpose of protesting Confederate iconography in the city, the Madre Luce has been moved to and vandalized in several locations. They actually brought that out there originally, like a year ago. April Lewis, community artist, organizer, and membership manager at OpenWorks, a fabrication space in the Greenmount West neighborhood of Baltimore City. And the city came and took it down. So I didn't even know that that sculpture existed until that point. And then the city gave the artist the opportunity to, like, remove it instead of just throwing it away. And so they took it and stored it in the basement of the copycat building. Um, And while it was there, it was vandalized. And it was actually vandalized by like spraying the words nigger on the belly of the sculpture. And everyone was like really shocked that like this sort of like racism could lie within our art community. Where the vandalism of the Madre Luce brought to bear more blatant instances of bigotry. For April, the Confederate monuments had less direct and more insidious impact. My daughter went to school a few blocks away from the one that's in Mount Vernon, and I would drive past that every day, and it honestly just becomes a part of the landscape, which I think is really interesting, because I think that one thing that I know now that I'm older and looking back is that there have been many of these sort of, in my adult years, um, kind of things that are subtle, sort of like subtle, subtle sort of like racist things that I encounter or experience. One, you could maybe call them like microaggressions. Um, but I do feel like the Confederate monuments are sort of like these like baby reminders all the time that, you know, we really haven't progressed as far as we think we have. My name is Mecca Lewis, and I'm an incoming freshman at Hampshire College in Amherst, Massachusetts, and I am a filmmaker. Mecca is April's daughter. Honestly, um, when I was growing up, I didn't really notice the Confederate statues. I mean, they were just statues of people on horses and such. I grew up in um, Baltimore, but also I lived in Severn, Maryland. When you get around those areas, you run into more white people and especially more conservative white people. In the neighborhood that I live next to, there would be people with Confederate flags in their yard and things like that, and I never really thought about it. I always thought that the Confederate flag was actually the same thing that they put on homes that are condemned. (laughs) But I remember my cousin was telling me that he, he saw a Confederate flag and walked onto the people's yard and they released their dog and like you know was chasing them or whatever and I was like why would they do that for like a poster that they put on condemned buildings and so then you know he told me about that. For Mecca, Baltimore's truest monuments, the ones that best reflect the city's identity and curves within it, are not made of iron or bronze. Being from Baltimore City, uh, I love murals. (laughs) I love that they're just everywhere around here. When I went on a college search and I was going to all these cities in the country, I was noticing that murals aren't just something that are 
there all the time and so when I came back I was like oh these are my favorite murals and you know I have an appreciation for them here now for public art. As for the Confederate monument removal, Mecca views the gesture with optimism. I think our local government is definitely making a statement about what we value as a community. I mean, I went to a Baltimore City Public High School and Baltimore City Public Schools in general, and, you know, there was a constant battle between the state and the schools about allocating funding and what's important and what we value. And so you get into a mindset about, you know, the government is against us. Um, But it's really reassuring to know that they are with us when it comes to things like that. I'm glad the, the Confederate monuments were removed, but then that opens the gate for everybody's stuff to be examined. And I mean, black, white, Latino, Hispanic, whatever you want to call your, yourself. If you got a Korean monument, everything is now going to be exposed to that. And who's offended by that? It makes us open up that lens to other people's monuments and how sacred are they and how revered are they. And how would you feel if somebody took yours down? This is Kevin Brown, who you may remember from our Season 1 episode about the Station North Arts District. Kevin is a member of the Station North Board of Directors, as well as the owner of the Station North Arts Cafe Gallery and Nancy by Snack, where we sat down with him and Rise of Charm City Senior Advisor, Marcia Jews. Because every monument, everybody that has a monument built to them, got some dirty bubblegum under the table, or there's, some, there's something greasy somewhere. I, I just believe that. And the people who are rallying around the removal of these statues and want to replace them with the current-day iconic heroes for stage. we got to be careful with that, too, because your hero may not be my hero. I want my grandson to know it was him, him, and him. These people wrote this. These people did this. Don't forget it. And now they're, they've spawned these people. So you start doing that and you forget. It leaves your memory. I don't want my memory to be erased. I don't want you to erase. I want to see you and remember that I always have to keep my eyes very, open. You're on a very small minority on this. Both Kevin and Marsha have had experiences with the removal of cultural markers that were significant to them. Landmarks not officially recognized by the city as historic, but historically meaningful all the same. In Station North, there's a brand new incarnation of an old movie house. And now it's the beautiful $17 million parkway. The Parkway Theater first opened in 1915 and closed its doors as a movie theater in 1978. But in 2002, the building was added to the National Register of Historic Places and as such, protected from complete demolition. After years of housing other business endeavors, the Parkway reopened as a movie theater in May of 2017. But when it did, another historic marker, one that existed in the shadow of the building on the ground outside it, was missing. There was a Harry Belafonte um, sidewalk paver in the front of that property that was removed during construction, and its existence was denied initially when approached by the developers and, and the architects. Subsequently, they admitted that they tried to move it and tried to save it, but that it crumbled under those circumstances, which I found a little bit kind of incredulous. I was there in 1998 when Harry Belafonte signed that sidewalk paper alongside Congressman, then Congressman Elijah Cummings, Kwasi Nfume, uh, uh, Dr. Levi Watkins, all present at this. And so for it to not, for me to be told that it was never there was just Incredible. So there were actually stories written in the paper 
during that time by the Afro and the Baltimore Sun about Harry Belafonte being on the corner of North and Charles Street talking about the role of the black artists in the community. It was a very important speech at the time. And um, for any semblance of his presence there to be removed and then being denied that it was ever there just shook me to my core because I walked past it every day as I walked between my restaurants and we looked down at it because I was there when it was placed there and I was kind of proud that it was there. The cast set of Harry Belafonte's handprints may have made the news when it was placed, but its displacement was much quieter. Aside from a piece in Baltimore's beloved alt-weekly, the city paper, incidentally another historic bastion facing imminent closure, the destruction of the Belafonte paver went largely uncovered. The same is true of a somewhat undersung African-American history museum on the waterfront in Fells Point. The Frederick Douglass Isaac Myers Maritime Park Museum is on the second floor of the headquarters of the Living Classrooms Foundation in Fells Point. The Living Classrooms is a community human educational services nonprofit organization. It was created to celebrate the lives of Frederick Douglass, who was a slave back in the 1800s and worked on the docks and lived in Baltimore. It also celebrates the life of Isaac Myers, who was born about 25 years after him in the 1800s, but what became the founder of the first black union, trade union, and he became an abolitionist with Frederick Douglass. And he and 15 other African-American men created the Chesapeake Marine Railway and Dry Dock Company in 1868. 2012-2013, the entire staff of the Frederick Douglass Isaac Myers Maritime Park Museum was fired. They were fired for lack of funding. Though the museum is still currently open, Marcia says that it isn't especially visible to the scores of tourists who make their way to Baltimore's Inner Harbor and Fells Point waterfront each year, and that subtle changes to the signage and promotional accents in and on the building have reinforced this. The logo, the Sankofa bird that you have to know your past to see your future, is no longer on the front of the building. Rather, it has the Living Classrooms sign, and at the bottom it says Douglas Myers Maritime Park. It doesn't say anything about the museum. The flags with the Sankofa bird, which was the logo that used to hang in the hall going into the building, are no longer there. On the second floor, the Living Classrooms Foundation has, you know, 10-foot lettering across the glass bridge for the second floor. It doesn't speak to the fact that there's a museum inside. So unless you really know there's a museum there, it's not there. You heard Marcia's opinion about the Confederate monuments earlier. She thinks they should be preserved as a visual reminder and a constant indictment of the city's racial history. She also believes that black landmarks should be preserved and that there should be as valiant an effort to save them as there was an effort to remove the Confederate ones. It's about us as a people. It's about black people being connected and being concerned about our institutions, be it their, be our HBCUs, be it museums, be it programs, be it dance companies, be it whatever, whoever we are, we can't expect other people to do anything for us. And if we don't rally around our own institutions and our own programs, who should? As a vocal majority of African-American Baltimore residents celebrate what they consider to be one victory, the removal of the Confederate monuments, 
Other battles are being quietly and not so quietly waged in the interest of preserving the objects and institutions that only some communities in the city acknowledge as sacred and beloved. Everyone has their own convictions about which fights should be foregrounded. For some, the Confederate monuments were one such fight. For others, the focus is on dismantling the systems behind the symbols. But in Baltimore, one thing is certain. Someone is always fighting for something. Nothing here completely escapes community notice. Weeks like this one, in which years of debate result in swift and decisive action, remind us that doing the work is actually working. Weeks like this one remind us that if monuments that have remained planted in this city can be toppled in one night, other barriers to Baltimore's ability to thrive can be felled too. For me, the presence of that hope will be as lasting as the Confederate Monument's absence. This bonus episode of The Rise of Charm City was produced by Allie Post and Stacia Brown. It is brought to you with financial support from the Robert W. Deutsch Foundation and listeners like you. Production assistance was provided by Marsha Jews. Our theme music is produced by Mark Gunnery. Visit riseofcharmcity.com to find out more about the upcoming second half of season two. And follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. We're at Rise of Charm City. You can find and listen to other episodes of The Rise of Charm City on iTunes, SoundCloud, Stitcher, and other podcast providers.